Welcome to the sixth Ralph Miliband lecture on global risks and politics in the 21st uh, century. Today's topic is, of course, the hydrogen economy, preparing the world for a new energy era, and the start of a third industrial revolution. And our speaker is, of course, Jeremy Rifkin. A few words about him. Jeremy Rifkin is president of the Foundation on Economic Trends in Washington, D.C., and the author of no less than 17 books on the impact of scientific and technological changes on the economy, society, and the environment. His most recent uh, very large and significant volume, The European Dream, argued that while the great American dream is fading and its impact across the world is fading, a new powerful European dream is emerging to capture the attention of the wider world. And this new emerging European dream, he argues, is the mirror opposite of the American dream, but crucially far better suited to meet the challenges of a globalizing society in the 21st century. His 2002 volume, the topic, of course, of today's lecture, a book entitled The Hydrogen Economy, envisions the dawn of a new economy powered by hydrogen that will fundamentally change the nature of our market society, political and social institutions, just as coal and steam power once did. He writes not only, uh, uh, has written not only a large number of books, but writes constantly and gives interview in the media and the press. But the one thing I will mention, a weekly column he writes on global issues that is published in a, an array of, uh, uh, of well-known newspapers, The Guardian, The Süddeutsche Zeitung, uh, Le Soir, uh, El País, among many other international newspapers. So please join me now in giving him a very warm welcome. note that the hydrogen economy is, works on a level playing field and no stages. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for coming this afternoon. It's nice to be back at LSC. Well, you know... When future generations look back at us, they're going to call us the oil people. We're the oil people. We have had a lot of great anthropological ages. We had the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. There's no doubt we're the fossil fuel age. It's all about oil. It really is. We grow our food in petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides. Actually, agriculture takes up 17% of the energy we use in America for growing and processing and marketing foods. Our clothes are primarily made out of petrochemical synthetics. Our pharmaceutical products are still petrochemical derived for the most part. Our plastics, our building materials, our power, our transport, our heat, our light. We have evolved an entire era based on this energy flow, coal, oil, gas, and to some extent uranium. But now we have four crises, and they're deeply embedded in this sunset era of fossil fuels and uranium. 
and they're daunting for your generation. Climate change, increasing third world debt because of the price of energy rising on world markets, increasing political instability in the oil-producing countries, especially in the Persian Gulf, and the prospect of peak oil looming on the horizon. Climate change. Let me, may I make a suggestion if I could just at the beginning? I've been a teacher for a long time. I teach at the Wharton School in the United States. And I have one little rule. You don't have to obey it if you want. I hate note-taking. What, what, is, what is your name? Thomas. When you go out, hello, when you go out and you have a social conversation with someone and you're talking ideas, do you take notes? I didn't think so. All right. I'm going to help you guys out here. Let me have these. This is going to be a born-again experience. They're already having withdrawal symptoms, I can tell. Just go with the conversation. You're not having a test on this, are you? All right. You'll thank me for this later. Just watch them up here. They're going to be right there. All right? I think you'll re trust me. You'll remember everything you want to remember at the end of this conversation. I know when you have a social conversation, the next day you can tell every level and every nuance of that conversation if the gossip is good, correct? All right. Climate change, third world debt, the Middle East, peak oil. Climate change is the entropy bill for 200 years of profligate use of fossil fuels. We, we dug up the burial grounds of the Jurassic Age, and we used them in very short order. But now we have so much global warming gases in our atmosphere, we're just not getting enough of the sun's heat off this planet. It's as simple and complicated as that. Every one of us that's been involved in climate change for the last 25 or so years, we all underprojected the speed at which climate change is occurring. The third climate change report has just come out from the United Nations. And what is so interesting about this report is that every time there's been a report by the UN, the next report has accelerated the speed of real-time global warming. For example, on the second climate report, the projection was that the great mountain ranges of the world, the snow would disappear from the Himalayas to the Andes by the 22nd century. It's happening in real time now. The second climate report said that we would see much more intense hurricane activity in the Gulf Stream. That's kind of the canary in the mine right there. But we'd see it by late century. We're seeing it in real time now. The second report said that we might see, might see the Arctic as a ice-free lake in the summertime by the 22nd century. The polar bears are drowning now. And a study two weeks ago said it's going to be ice-free in 23 years. Takes my breath away. I don't think any of us have, have absorbed the enormity, the scale of what's happening to us. Not our policymakers, not our business leaders, not the public. Let me put it in perspective. The middle scenario for the third climate report is that we may see an increase in temperature in your lifetime this century, of three degrees Celsius. That's the most likely scenario, all right? Now, in perspective, a rise in temperature of three degrees Celsius in this little planet takes us back in time three million years ago to the temperature of the Pliocene. That was a completely different planet, different flora, different fauna. And the report says, this is a very sober report, the report says that if we go to 2 degrees Celsius, which is not likely, we could lose up to a third of all the plant and animal species on Earth in your century and your children. If we go to 3 degrees Celsius, we hit over 50% extinction. My friends, there's only been five extinction periods that we know of in the geological record. 
of biological life. And every one of those extinctions, when over half the species went extinct, and they never did so in 100 years, you know how long it took to recover the biodiversity after each extinction? 10 million years. We're not designed, our consciousness and mind, to grasp these periods of time. We homo sapiens have been here less than 200,000 years. In fact, the concentration of global warming gases in the planet today in the atmosphere is greater now than at any time in the last 650,000 years. So I'm not sure we've grasped this. We could be facing extinction of the kind of life we know and the time that separates you and your children. We're in real-time climate change now. If we were to measure human accomplishments in terms of impact, we'd have to say that global warming may turn out to be the greatest accomplishment of our species. It's a negative one, but we've actually affected the chemistry of a planet in the solar system. That's power. Climate change, the oil connection. Third world debt, the oil connection. It's transparent, but we really don't talk about it. If we think we're taking a hit at $65 a barrel on oil on world market, what do we think is happening in the 90 poorest countries in the world this afternoon? Here's the little story no one wants to talk about. The fact is there's a direct relationship between increasing third world debt and price of oil. Back after World War II, when the colonies were liberated, when uh, the, the British, the French, and others uh, decolonized, and of course uh, we had new independent states, a lot of the young leaders came to LSE. This was a little testing ground for young leaders in Africa and Asia, and they were taught. And, and it wasn't just LSE. They, they came to other schools, but the professors said, look, if you want to be a player with your new country on the global stage, you need to have an oil infrastructure. Otherwise, you can't be a player. Now, it made sense in the 1950s. Oil was trading at $3 a barrel as late as 1973. It was a very cheap commodity. So it just made sense that it looked like it was an unlimited bounty of energy, and this was the right path for development. None of us anticipated OPEC. We didn't see it coming. When the oil-producing countries slapped that oil embargo in 1973, oil shot from 3 to $12 a barrel, and the price has never come down again. For 30 years... The developing countries have been borrowing money from the World Bank, the IMF, and other lending institutions to try to pay, among other things, for oil they can't afford because they were in but not totally in. They couldn't get out. Today, 83 cents out of every dollar borrowed in the third world is being used to pay back the debt. There's not much energy going through the flow line. How bad is the divide? Energy regimes determine the distribution of energy and power. They go together. People say to me, haven't we always had a divide between the haves and have-nots? It's just human nature. Some go to the top, some go to the bottom. No, we need to bring cultural anthropology back to the university. The fact is we are hunter-gatherers for 98% of our existence on this planet. And as hunter-gatherers, there was no surplus. We had what we could take on our back. And without surplus, you can't divide the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. We didn't create surplus until women created economics. And women created economics, what was the invention? The critical invention that began economics here in the LSE. Pottery. With pottery, you can store cereal plants in the form of grain. And then the question is, who holds on to the granaries and who distributes to who? 
So as we went into Neolithic agriculture and the beginning of the Sumerian agriculture revolution, etc., we began to divide out. But it was still fairly steady state. As we got to the energy age today, coal, oil, gas, and uranium, these are very elite energies. They're only found in certain parts of the world. They take a tremendous amount of military to secure them geopolitically. Coal, oil, and gas, and uranium have been the geopolitics of international struggles for a long time. And it takes a huge capital investment to secure and distribute them. So when you assume that most of the products, goods, and services we have all come from this energy regime, all right, what's the divide look like as we enter the sunset of this energy era? We're in the sunset. Today at the sunset of this fossil fuel uranium era, the 356 wealthiest people on this planet, we could tuck them into this room. Their combined wealth now equals the annual income of 40% of the human race. You won't need to take notes to remember these stats. The four richest families, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Waltons of the Walmart family, and the Mexican billionaire whose name always escapes me, their combined assets now equal the annual income. Four families, the annual income of 940 million poorest people living on Earth. This is just unprecedented. Elite energy, elite hierarchical distribution of all the goods and services made from that energy. Global warming, oil connection. Third world debt, oil connection. Middle East, oil connection. Regardless of one's political persuasion here in this room, does anyone really believe that American and British troops would be in Iraq if there wasn't some oil connection? Anybody? But this is a dangerous geopolitical game. It's Vietnam deja vu. We're stuck. The Americans, the Brits, we're stuck. We're in. We can't get out. We should have known better. And now we're creating a generation or two of terrorism. And we have an even more unstable world there. And that's where most of the oil and gas is. Oil connection, global warming. Oil connection, third world debt. Oil connection, geopolitics of political instability in the Persian Gulf. And finally, peak oil. That's a geological term. Some of you may know it. Peak oil in geology is when half the oil is used up in the world. That's the top of what they call the classic Hubert Bell Curve. All right? Hubert was a, an obscure geologist working in the United States in the 1950s. He did a chart, and he did the numbers, and he predicted that oil would peak, half the oil used up in the U.S. by 1972. That would be the year. Now, remember, the U.S. was the largest producer of oil in the world. We always think of Saudi Arabia. The Brits became a great world power in the 19th century because you were the first to harness steam with coal. You had a lot of coal. America became the great world power in the 20th century because we borrowed the Daimler and Benz internal combustion engine from the Germans. We had the oil wells. Well, his prediction of peak oil in 72, right on target, to everyone's surprise. So where are we in terms of peak oil? Peak oil means when half is used up, it's over. Because once you hit the top of that bell curve, those prices go through the roof. So even though you have half left, it's unaffordable in terms of society. The optimists, International Energy Agency, the optimists say that uh, at a 2% growth rate in the use of oil, now this... This was, uh, these were studies done five years ago. Can you imagine just 2% growth rate with China, India, the European Union, U.S.? Not, not, not possible. But at a 2% growth rate in the use of oil, the optimists say we peak in 2035. In the last five years, a dozen or so of the best geologists in the world, world class, top in their field, 
have been using new computer simulation studies. They factored in new efficiencies. They factored in new finds off West Africa, the rest of the world. That we've plotted most of the planet for oil. And what they're saying is we probably will peak between 2010 and 2020. A new survey you may have read in the paper two weeks ago says we're going to probably peak in 2012. I have no idea who's right. If you read Chapter 2 of my book, The Hydrogen Economy, it's a rather tedious chapter, I've got to admit. It probably will put you to sleep. It puts me to sleep, and I wrote it. But I kept going back and forth between the pessimist and the optimist to try to figure out who was right about peak. And then it dawned on me I was micromanaging data. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference who's right. They're only arguing about 20 years. Do we peak in 2010 to 2020 like the pessimists believe? Or do we peak between 2030, 35 as the optimists believe? That 20-year window in historic terms is so small, it's almost not open. And what they agree is when we do peak, two-thirds of the remaining oil and gas, Persian Gulf. If we think the Persian Gulf is a hot spot today in 2007, try to imagine 2008, 2009, 2010. China wants it. India wants it. Japan wants it. The EU wants it. We all want the oil. And how long will those regimes last there before they're toppled? This is a very dangerous situation. I work with the business community around the world. Every day they wake up, they open up the FT, Financial Times, and worry that a pipeline hasn't been severed or a regime hasn't fallen. You can't run a global economy with that kind of political instability. Not tenable in the long run. Not sustainable. The energy companies uh, realize that uh, we're moving toward peak in oil. They're moving to natural gas. Natural gas burns a little better, a little less CO2. But the same bell curve, we see that natural gas shadows the same bell curve as oil. So it doesn't give us many years, very few years, uh, almost nothing. There's plenty of other fossil fuels. We're, we are really not running out of fossil fuels. We've got lots of them. We have tar sand in Canada, and you here in Britain may be surprised to know that energy is the, uh, Canada is the largest producer of energy to the U.S., Canada. Then Mexico, then Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, then the Middle East. So in Canada, in Alberta, they have tar sand. It's, there's huge amounts of it. Chevron, uh, uh, Syncor, uh, they're all up there, and they're competitive at $12 a barrel. Speaking of Mr. Chavez, he has a lots of heavy oil, lots of it down in Venezuela. And there's coal deposits still around the world. So we're not running out of fossil fuels. The problem is they're all dirty. They emit much more CO2. They were not factored into the UN climate study reports because we assumed that we would still be in an oil grade well into the century. If we're forced to make a dramatic shift to tar sand heavy oil and coal quickly because we haven't done our homework and we don't have another view in sight, we're going to put a lot more carbon up there. How much carbon can we put up there? Are we willing to sacrifice future generations, the extinction of plant and animal life on this planet, to get a couple of years? then maybe we don't deserve to be here. Frankly, I could make a good case that we don't deserve to be here in this sense. I don't want to make this case, but it's an interesting case. We humans, we're only one half of 1% of the animal biomass on this earth. That's all we are, one half of 1% of the biomass. We're now using 40% of the world's photosynthesis. It's just not tenable. And that's at the expense of our fellow creatures. 
I believe we're in the sunset of this energy era, and there's no one I know that believes we're in the sunrise for fossil fuels and uranium. We're in the sunset, but sunsets take a while. They take a while. But looming on the horizon is a new energy era. It's at the front door. I don't know if we can get through the door quick enough, and if your generation has the resolve and the concentration and the attention span to make it happen. But let me back up first before I talk about it. The great economic revolutions in history, the really big ones, the big ones, they occur when two things happen. First, a basic change in the way we use the energy of this planet. And second, a basic change in the way we communicate with each other to organize new energy regimes. The convergence of new energy and communication regimes, those are the pivotal points in economic history. They change the human equation forever. Because when communications and energies leap forward, it allows us to extend our central nervous system. It allows us to compress time and space, expropriate more of our surroundings, and exchange between each other at a quicker and more dense rate. You follow me? That's what economics is all about. Parenthetically, we're still basing economic theory on Newton's mechanics, which is a bit of a joke because Newton's mechanics only tells you about location and acceleration. As Alfred North Whitehead said to his students once in a, in a seminar, he said, after you know about acceleration location, there's not much more of interest to be said on the subject. We should be basing economic theory on the laws of thermodynamics. I wrote a book called Entropy in 1980. If you get a chance, it's out of print, I think, here. Take a look at it. The laws of thermodynamics, how our energy gets used up how it goes from readily available to unavailable states, and on the way we turn it into utilities for short-term use. If we understood thermodynamics as the basis of economic theory, we would not be in the pickle we're in right now. So where do we stand? The great economic revolutions are coming together of communication and energy. I'll give you an example. Go back to ancient Iraq, the Sumerians, we talked, I talked about a few minutes ago. They were the first to harness the sun's energy in plants through photosynthesis and stored grain became the primary energy. It was complicated. Hydraulics, irrigation, planting, storing, distribution. It required an entirely new way to communicate with each other. What was it? Writing, cuneiform. The coming together of writing and stored grain, communication and energy gave us a 10,000 year multiplier effect, the agricultural revolution. Early modern era, Gutenberg reinvents the print press. Chinese already had it. They even had movable type. German engineering is pretty good. For two centuries, the print press, as a revolution in communication, had no economic mission. It was an orphan. It had a powerful social mission, as you know. The ability to mass-produce Bibles in vernacular created a great schism in Christianity. And Martin Luther was able to use the print press just like you use YouTube, MySpace, and uh, blog sites today. Without it, he couldn't have had a, uh, he couldn't have tested the Pope in the Vatican. So the mass production of Bibles and vernacular created a schism in Christianity. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, the Counter Reformation, the Thirty Year War, the Peace of Westphalia. It was social upheaval. But the economic mission of this communication vehicle really didn't become clear until James Watt patented the steam engine. At the dawn of the American Revolution, we went to coal and steam power. We quicken the pace, speed, flow, and density of exchange. We compress time and space. We extend the central nervous system of the human race. And it required a much more agile, sophisticated communication vehicle called print. Bless you. Try to imagine organizing the first industrial revolution with codex. You see? 
In the early 20th century, the telegraph and more importantly the telephone electricity became the communication command and control vehicle to organize the second industrial revolution, the internal combustion engine oil, 100-year multiplier effect. If this sounds strange to you, for some reason our historians have missed the connection between communication and energy through history. I'm not sure why. I have no idea why. Why am I mentioning this this afternoon for this next generation of business leaders? We had a very powerful communication revolution in the last 15 years. Personal computers, the Internet, satellite, wireless, Wi-Fi communication. As the late Mr. McLuhan would say, we outed the central nervous system of a billion and a half people at the speed of light. It's flat, it's open source, it's distributed, and it's global. We've used this software IT telecom revolution to increase productivity with IT. We've used it to reorient education and to be able to store in memory our knowledge. We've changed our forms of entertainment, and we're actually changing the cognitive wiring of our infants in ways we're just beginning to explore in neuropsychology. Infants that grow up in a high, a second generation electronic revolution that with a high stimulation, their brains are wired differently than a first electronic revolution and wired differently than a print revolution or in a script or oral culture. We're just beginning to figure out the differences. But what I want to suggest to you today is that this flat, distributed, open source extension of the CNS, Central Nervous System, has a chapter two, a deeper mission. And what is becoming, just becoming, glimpsed to becoming clear in the next year, just starting among policy leaders, is that this communication revolution is the command and control mechanism that converges with a new energy regime. Renewable energies, they're distributed. <clears throat> stored in the form of hydrogen. And how does it connect to communication? Hydrogen is the basic element of the universe. It's the stuff of the stars. It's the lightest element in existence. And when you use it for power, what are the byproducts? Pure water, so pure you can drink it in heat. With hydrogen, we're at the end game because there's no more carbon and no more CO2. We're at the end game. But remember, hydrogen is not free-floating. It's a vector. It carries other energies. You have to extract hydrogen from something else to get it. You can extract it from coal. You can extract it from oil, from natural gas. You can use nuclear power, but those are the old energies. We'll get to them. You can also extract hydrogen by taking renewable energy, the wind, the sun, geothermal, hydro, biomass, garbage, the waves, the tides, generate electricity, let it flow but take some of the surplus and electrolyze water like you did in high school chemistry and grab the hydrogen so you have stored energy. With biomass, you can take the hydrogen directly out of the agricultural waste, the forestry waste, the garbage. Hydrogen is a universal vector that allows you to take all the disparate forms of renewable energy and create a universal vector like you have with digital and media and with the euro and commerce. One has to imagine in 25 years from now, millions of fuel cells, hydrogen-powered, storing locally generated renewable energy. Millions. Little portable fuel cell cartridges, hydrogen-powered from renewables, so you can power up your laptop, your cell phone, your MP3 player. You know, the lithium batteries are blowing up. They can't make it. And we'll talk about the fuel cell cartridges. They're already here. There's some reasons they're not on the market this year. 
we're talking about stationary fuel cells. Every home, every office, every school, every technology and industrial park, every shopping mall will have a fuel cell, hydrogen powered. So it can take renewable energy that's regionally generated, store it, use it for transport, and use it to get electricity back to the grid. All right? A fuel cell powered by hydrogen storing renewable energy is analogous to a personal computer. Now we're getting to the convergence between communication and energy and a third industrial revolution. With a computer, you generate your own information. And then if you want, you can click the mouse, you can share with a billion people in five seconds, correct? You're also the disseminator. You're not only an end user, you're a producer and disseminator. If I had come into this room 25 years ago and said in 25 years from now you'll be able to have an eight-ounce little device in your hands, portable, and with that you'll be able to send audio, video, text messaging, pictures to a billion people in five seconds and communicate with each other, what would you have said? We did it in 20 years, most of it. Now imagine fuel cells powered by hydrogen storing renewable energy, ubiquitous. How are they analogous to a computer? When you and I generate renewable energies locally, it could be our solar roof on our home. It could be wind turbines. It could be local agricultural municipal waste. We're going to have more than we need at any given time of day. What do we do with the surplus? We send it back to the power grid. This is where the communication revolution of Silicon Valley converges with distributed renewable energies because they're distributed everywhere and stored in the form of hydrogen. We're going to take the same technology. It's identical that we developed in Silicon Valley for the Internet revolution. It's the same software. It's the same hardware. It's the same architecture. And we're going to take that intelligent technology and we're going to smarten up the power grid of the U.K., the E.U., and the world so that the power grids are intelligent, distributed, open access, open source, just like the Internet, so that when you generate power, because we're all the power plants now, we can send back the surplus peer-to-peer -peer and share it on the power grid just like we share information on the Internet, open source. Technology is already here. IBM is testing smart grid technology with EMBW in Germany and Oregon, Washington State. PG&E is testing in California right now in real homes, real communities. The coming together of distributed communication and distributed generation of hydrogen, which is a vector for renewable energy, is the third industrial revolution. It should have as powerful an impact in the 21st century as the coming together of print with coal, steam, and rail in the 19th century. It gave us a 100-year multiplier effect. And it should be equally as powerful as the coming together of electricity, the telegraph and telephone, as a communication vehicle to organize the internal combustion engine and oil in the auto culture, which gave us the 20th century. And like the other two industrial revolutions, this third one is going to change everything. This is power to the people. It's exciting and it's scary for a lot of companies and governments at large. When we went from burning wood to coal and steam and rail, print, and we went from human slavery. By the way, we ended human slavery with the first industrial revolution. It took 10,000 years. We held each other as slaves for human labor from the beginning of agriculture until the 19th century. The last sons and daughters of slaves died in my country in my lifetime. When the coal steam came in, steam power was cheaper to feed coal to the steam engine than to feed the mouth of a slave. Slavery became a redundant economic labor force. 
So we went from slave labor to contract labor. We went from monarchy to democracy. We went from feudal economies to market capitalism. We went from city states to nation states when we made the shift into stored sun in the form of coal and steam power. Try to imagine distributed power. You're the power company. You're the power company. You're the power company. What happens when it's flat and open, or open source and equal access and power is distributed across the planet? It's going to have to change our living environments, our political and social institutions in ways we can't imagine now. It'll be on your watch, on your watch, on how you do this. While hydrogen's the future, we've known this for 30 years. Our spaceships have been powered by these high-tech hydrogen fuel cells for 30 years. We've got to bring the technology back to Earth and create a third industrial revolution. That's the good news. Here's the, here's the tough news. Hydrogen has to be extracted from another compound. It's a carrier. Now, one can extract hydrogen, as I said, from natural gas. You still have CO2. And natural gas burns a little better, but natural gas is going to shadow the oil curve, so we don't get much time out of it, a couple of years. We could use nuclear power. And here in Britain, I'm not sure why, uh, but uh, Tony Blair believes nuclear power is the option. I just met with uh, your environmental minister this morning, David Miliband. We talked about nuclear power. Uh, the nuclear power industry says, well, let's build a new generation nuclear power plants and we can get the hydrogen using nuclear power. Here's why I think nuclear power is a no-go, and I work with many of the major power companies in the world. Here's what they say privately. One, they're too expensive. Even the new generation of nuclear power plants would cost a billion and a half at the get-go with no cost overrun, and there's never been a nuclear power plant that's come in at cost, ever. Now, try to imagine how many nuclear power plants you would need to make some dent in the carbon imprint. This is why I can't understand why some of the best and brightest here in the UK and in the United States are advocating this. Do the numbers. There's 450 nuclear power plants in the world today. They're old. They're tired. They're moving to the graveyard. We have to replace them. Just to replace the existing 450 power plants, can you imagine doing that in 20 years? But if you want to have some imprint on the carbon, you'd have to triple the number of nuclear power plants. Try to imagine 1,200 nuclear power plants being built at this cost in the next 20 years to make an imprint. I am, do not, for the life of me, understand this because I, I deal from a business perspective. It makes no sense. Now, I know that your prime minister says this will all be done by the market, no subsidies. It's not going to happen then. Because the power companies I work with that have nuclear power, they're not going to come in unless it's subsidized. Two, we still don't know how to get rid of the nuclear waste. That's a deal breaker. You know, in the 1950s, the nuclear industry said, build the power plants and then give us enough time and money and we'll figure out how to get rid of the waste. We're 60 years in. The nuclear waste are building up in every power plant in the world. You know there's no disposal? Can you imagine a technology with no disposal? So in America, we spend $9 billion. We spent 18 years to build a fail-safe vault under a mountain in the west called Yucca Mountain. It was supposed to be fail-safe, no leakage for 10,000 years, the half-life of the uranium. Guess what? The nuclear waste. It's leaking, according to the government, and we haven't even opened it up yet for disposal. 9,999 years too early. Third, according to the International Atomic Energy Commission, we run into uranium deficits with the existing power plants between 2025 and 2035. There's more uranium there, but at what cost? Fourth, why would we ever build 
a thousand nuclear power plants in an age of terrorism. Have we lost our minds here? I, I'm being very serious. We don't want Iran to have nuclear uh, power because they could use it to enrich materials for a bomb, correct? We don't want North Korea to have it for the same reason. But at the same time, uh, governments in the world, uh, our government, your government, the Russians, many, are saying we want to be able to have all the other 150 countries have the nuclear power. Try to imagine uranium in transit all over the world. This is not academic. A year and a half ago, the Australian government picked up 18 alleged Muslim terrorists, alleged, who were planning to destroy the nuclear power plant in Sydney. It would have been catastrophic. That's what you call high-end targeting. And those power plants are totally vulnerable in the world. We've done simulations in our country. They don't pass the test. All you have to do is come up with an SUV, lob a handheld missile over the yard into the nuclear waste because it's, it's not very well secured. Finally, it doesn't make sense to me because it's, it's elite energy, but we'll get into that later. The coal industry says, wait, wait, we're the answer, clean coal. Why don't we get the hydrogen, steam it out of the coal, build the power plants, and then give us enough time and money, and we'll figure out how to sequester the CO2. Sound familiar? First of all, there is no technology on the horizon that we can conceive of that would make it commercially viable to sequester the CO2. But even if we could, any, any science majors here from the past, or everybody's business? Okay. Try to imagine sequestering under oil seams and under the deep oceans massive volumes of CO2 which will never leak and never escape for all of eternity. It makes the nuclear waste issue look very easy. And if it does escape, you've got big problems. We saw this in, in Cameroon, in Lake Kivu, in the 1990s. An entire lake blew up, and we were, the whole world was shocked. We'd never seen a lake blow up. We thought there was an underground an, a volcano. Then when scientists explored, what they saw is fresh streams were moving lots of CO2 into the bottom of that lake. The pressure built up. It exploded. 1,800 people died within five seconds in the villages surrounding it. There's another way to do this, but it's, it's not a magic bullet. But the idea is we've got to go back to the sun. We are a species that lives off solar flow. Oil, coal, gas, and uranium were an anomaly, some stored sun. They allowed us to distort our species' imprint <coughs> at the expense of our fellow creatures in the earth in a short period of time. So if we're going to go back to solar flow, we're going to have to have a way to store it so we can wean ourselves into a new period of history. Renewable energy, generate electricity, solar, wind, geothermal, hydro. Use some of it to electrolyze water. Grab the hydrogen for stored renewables. With biomass, grab the hydrogen direct. Why hydrogen? Why can't we just have renewable energy? Anybody know why you can't do it just with renewables? It's, it's just about storage. This is, there may be other storage possibilities in the future, but right now hydrogen's the best bet as a universal vector. The sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing. Water tables can be down on the hydro and dams when there's a drought. Even biomass can vary in yield with forest culling and agricultural waste and garbage. So these are intermittent energies. So when the sun is shining, the wind is blowing, the water tables are up, then you generate electricity, take the surplus, grab the hydrogen from the water so when the when those renewables are not there, you've got stored energy. You've stored the renewables. With biomass, you store it direct. This is not academic. 
Brazil. Anybody here from Brazil? Brazil is 90% hydro for their electricity. They're renewable. They rely on water over the dam. Problem is, in 2001, the Amazon was hit with drought, global warming. The models projected it, and there's more coming. And so there wasn't enough water going over the dam for hydro, and the electricity kept going off all over the country. Had they had hydrogen at the dam at the time the, the, as a storage facility, they could have taken some of the electricity they generated, gone right back to the water, electrolyzed it, grabbed the hydrogen as storage so they would have it for the power grid when the water tables were down. So it is impossible to go into renewable energy era without hydrogen. The European Union's just benchmarked that 20% of the energy of this 27 member states of this union has to be renewable by 2020. Done deal. 20% energy means 33 to 40% of the electricity. Now, what happens in the EU when you have 25, 30, 35% of your electricity from renewables and it's a hot summer week and the sun stops shining, the wind stops blowing, the water tables are down for drought, what do you do? You better damn well have a storage infrastructure in place or chaos. So renewables and hydrogen go together. Hydrogen is the way you carry renewables, and it's a universal vector, so all the renewables have a common vector so that they're transferable, just like digital and just like the euro is for commerce. Let me give you uh, a sense of time frame. The bell curve for oil and gas is going up. Does anyone think it's going down, the price? We're not going back to 20. The next plateau will be 90, then it will probably shove back to 70. Then we go to 100, it will shove back to 80. We're not going back to 20. The indirect costs are going up. It's called climate change. I work with the insurance industries. They don't know what to do as they try to model this. They paid out three – Munich Re paid out – and uh, somebody has paid out billions for just Katrina. And the, how, the, re, the insurance industry now will not insure any homeowners on the East Coast beach properties in the United States from Maine to Florida. No more insurance because of seawater rise. We're just beginning to see the entropy bill. Eventually, the laws of thermodynamics tell us that eventually you pay the price. You never break even. You always lose because all your utility ends up as entropy, and then you pay to try to deal with the disorder. It's the laws of thermodynamics. It's not metaphor. I would encourage you to read a book by Georgescu Rogan, great economist, passed away a few years ago. He wrote the foreword to my book. He's a, much, he's a much more strict economist than I am, so his book is really quite well done. Uh, read Georgescu Rogan on thermodynamics or Herman Daly, Steady State Economics, or Kenneth Bolden, or if they run out, you can go to my book. All right? the, uh, so the situation, the situation is this. Bell curve for oil and gas is going up. The bell curve for renewable energies is going down. Moore's law is beginning to set in on wind and solar. Moore's law was, we first saw it in uh, software, IT, and then biotech, where the technology was moving at such a fast clip that we could double the knowledge and half the cost every 18 months, Moore's law. We're starting to see it in renewables because billions are moving there from the investment community. It's just a flood all in the last six months, thanks to your Stern report. And I, I want to give Mr. Blair some credit here. Uh, he has done a very good job of focusing the world community on climate change, as Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of California, has done in our country. But here in Europe, your prime minister has really done that, and he's to be credited with that. And that Stern report changed everything for us in the business community. It really began a conversation. So part of your prime minister's legacy, I think, is going to be that he stepped forward and he really framed 
this climate debate in political terms so that we really had to focus our attention on it, and he's to be credited with that. So, as the bell curve for fossil fuels and gas goes up, the bell curve for renewables and hydrogen goes down, economies of scale set in, we began to see a possibility of moving to the new energy era. But it won't happen without a full commitment between government, industry, and civil society, all three sectors. You need public capital, you need market capital and social capital to make this happen in every region. Because we're talking about changing the entire infrastructure of the planet from bottom to top, end to end, in less than 25 years. That is a daunting task to get us to a post-carbon era. It isn't just about trading credits for carbon. It isn't just about efficiency. All that's essential, but we still have to get off carbon if we're going to get under 2 degrees Celsius. So it isn't just about using the carbon more efficiently. We've got to get post-carbon. That's renewables, stored with hydrogen, distributed with smart power grids. I'm going to give you timetables. Remember I mentioned those little portable fuel cell cartridges? How far away? Seven Japanese companies have them for you right now, including Atashi and Toshiba. I have one in my office. The reason you don't have them is they're waiting for the UN to clear for the airlines. Because on security, if you can't bring these little fuel cell hydrogen cartridges on the airlines, the market is really not as big as you'd want it to be. You need the mobility. Companies have them. You're going to have five times the power, five times the duration you have in your lithium batteries. The auto industry. Billions are being spent. Every auto company in the world is testing buses, trucks, cars in real communities, like in London, around the world. I've driven hydrogen cars twice. Uh, it's quite a ride. Let me say that Honda will be out in two years. Most of the car companies, I can tell you at least about Toyota, uh, sorry, Toyota, Daimler, Chrysler, and GM. You're going to begin to see a shift from hybrid electric to hybrid fuel cell in about 45 years. They go on a track. Hybrid electric allows us to move into this range, and then the technology kind of organically moves to hydrogen fuel cell. All right? Let me tell you about the GM car. I never thought the GM, the stodgy old company it is, would create the concept car that's a breakthrough. It has. Now, how many have seen the GM Highwire car in film? It's amazing. This is a concept car. They already have a market car. And GM is slated, this is not for public notice yet, but they're slated to put 10,000 cars out in 2012, 100,000 in 2014. The other car companies are somewhere in the range of 2013, 2014, 2015. All right? So it's coming very quick. This car looks like a, uh, a uh, Batman car. Beautiful. Designed gorgeous. Now, what country did the design? Who are the best in design? The Italians. Come on. Let's wake up here. Is there any question about that? The software was done by the Swedes and Italians. Who did the engineering? The Germans at Castel Mainz. It's an Opal. It's beautiful. It's sleek. And it's designed to be two machines. It's designed to be a transport vehicle and a portable power plant where you own the utility. It's your utility. So you buy the four wheels on a chassis and you take them home, literally. And you snap on whatever car you want. It's modular. Snap on a convertible, snap it off. Put on a sedan, snap it off. SUV, snap it off. This car accelerates like an internal combustion engine. It has a 250-mile range, which isn't bad. The only exhaust is pure water and heat. You can drink the water if you like. There is no steering wheel. There is no 
pedals. There's no engine. There's no brakes. It's all run by a joystick. It's a dot-com car for your generation. I'll never figure out how to drive this car. Trust me. Everyone in this room under the age of 30, you can get in this in three minutes of trial and error down the street. And what's so interesting about this car is it has a day job and a night job. When you're not using it, what do you do with it? Plug it back to the grid. And that's where the Silicon Valley communication revolution converges with distributed renewable energy stored in the universal vector hydrogen. We take the same technology in Silicon Valley for the Internet. We make the power grid smart and intelligent so you can plug your car back. And if the cost of the electricity at any given 24-hour period is higher than the cost that it, for you to take renewables and generate the hydrogen, you're making money. You're selling back to the grid. This is a third industrial revolution. We're doing it now. California, New Jersey, Ontario, there are many regions that are selling back to the grid. In California, they've just mandated a million solar roofs in 10 years. So new SMEs are coming in. They're putting the solar roofs on GM's factory or in your own home. You pay this little company for your electricity. Then the surplus you send back to the grid. But the grid is so centralized and old, it's like the old media. So now they're in discussions in California on how to smarten the grid. Silicon Valley sees this as the next chapter of the IT revolution, and they're in deep conversation now. California set up a roadmap to a hydrogen economy to operationalize it. They led in Silicon Valley. They want to lead here, sixth largest economy in the world. But they're going to have to contend with Japan and, as I mentioned in a moment, the European Union. Lots of things happening right now in, across the EU. <clears throat> so who's going to control all this? This is distributed power. Who's going to control this? A little bit like the Internet. You know, in the beginning, the early uh, hackers said this is going to be free open access. Nobody owns the Internet, right? And then, of course, uh, Disney came along and Time Warner and the big companies, and they said, yeah, 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 we love this Internet, but you're going to have to pay for copyright here. Who won? The fact is the companies have had to readjust because this is so open, so transparent, you can't beat the kids, meaning there are millions of little Lilliputians out there. They're at 10 years old. They can figure out every time how to get around the encryption and share the material, whether it's a file sharing of any kind. You know this. You've all done it yourself. There's a couple of guilty people right there. I have to turn you into the authorities. But what I'm saying is there was no way. It's so flat and distributed. We at Wharton would never have entertained the idea of a Linux. It couldn't work, we would say. You cannot have an open source free model. It will not add value. Now we have to teach Linux. We would never have assumed a Wikipedia could work or a Google. We just wouldn't have. And I'm sure at LSE, nobody could have imagined that as an operating economic model 20 years ago. Now the question is bringing that model to the underlying infrastructure of energy, grid technology, distributed power. Who's going to control this? I saw the future in Aragon, Spain. I was just there for my second trip. Have anybody been to Aragon? Saragossa. This is a, the logistical center of Spain. All traffic goes going to Bilbao, Barcelona, Madrid goes through there. Spain's the seventh largest economy in the world. And this is the fifth transport corridor. It's the major artery of Europe from Bilbao through Spain into Nice through northern Italy to Slovenia and Central Europe. Powerful corridor for logistics. I saw the future. Let me preface this. 
What I, in our advanced management course at Wharton, we bring in CEOs from all over the world. What I'm saying to them is this. It isn't about labor cost anymore. If you think it's about labor cost, you are not where things are heading. It's all about logistics from here on in. It's the price of energy and it's the conditioning of climate change. This is what you have to look at on your bottom line. Those who succeed, those who maintain a margin, will have been able to deal with energy, climate change, and logistics. Aragon has done this. What this region did is 10 years ago, they located, they audited the region to find the optimum renewable energy, just like you look for coal. They found it in a little valley nestled in the Pyrenees. They put a technology park there, nine buildings up, 40 under construction. You go into this beautiful valley, and it looks like a 22nd century science fiction movie with these glass buildings with diagonal roofs, and there are wind turbines across the entire Pyrenees for wind power. And then they're getting the snow melts for hydro. They have solar collectors phased to the sun with all over the valley. They're now looking to get hydrogen from their agricultural waste to the biomass. They put an electrolyzer to grab some of the renewable energy for storage, for transport, and for the grid when, when the sun isn't shining and the snow is melted, et cetera. Right now, in only 10 years, 40% of all their energy now is local, it's self-sufficient, it's renewable, and at any given time of the year, 100%. They're off Russian gas and Persian Gulf oil within five to 10 years from now. And we've got big companies like Microsoft nestled in that park because they're guaranteed the bottom line on energy and logistics. The next stage, you know Wi-Fi. This is moving a little like Wi-Fi, bottom, bottom, and nobody's looking at it from the top. You know, no one saw Wi-Fi from the top. So a lot of the big communication companies spent billions of dollars trying to get those radio frequencies on the spectrum, and they didn't see Wi-Fi coming. After I was in uh, this region, the president of the Bass Nation said, come to our region. Our technology parks want to buy in. Then Andalusia said, we're in. And then the prime minister of Slovenia, who's central to the quarter, said, we're in. What's happening is each region is going to optimize their renewable energy store it in a universal vector called hydrogen, use it locally, but also use it for transport across the entire corridor of Europe, and then with smart grids, share in the distribution. It's grid technology taken to energy. And you could go through all 16 transport corridors and Wi-Fi them for energy. Bottom, bottom. They didn't wait for the energy giants to come in. It's about the bottom line. It's about climate change. It's about energy, but it's, also, it's really the bottom line. The biggest beneficiaries of this third industrial revolution will be the third world, without doubt. The reason people are powerless in the world is literal. It's actually literal. People are powerless because they don't have power. We talk about global connectivity and globalization, but over half the human race has never picked up a telephone. They've never made a single telephone call. A third of the human race this afternoon, that's one out of three of our brothers and sisters, has never had any access to electricity. And another 20% has such marginal access that it, they don't get much out of it. You can't be a player without electricity. The United Nations did a study in South Africa. For every 100 families you get electricity to, 20 new businesses. The reason globalization has failed is it's too elite because it's based on an energy regime that's by its nature top-down and elite in its production and distribution. So we end up with only 20% of the human race engaged in deep trade and commerce because they have the power, literally the power. 
as this technology ripens in the European Union, in places like California, Japan, we've got to get it to the developing world. There should be solar roofs everywhere. Garbage should be extracted with hydrogen. There should be wind turbines and there should be small hydro and waves and tides. And there should be hydrogen as a vector to store all of this and smart power grids so people can distribute it, power to the people. Power to the people. Let me end with politics, if I may. In uh, 2002, I was serving as an advisor to Romano Prati. He was president of the European Commission at that time, and I gave him a white paper on how the EU could begin a long-term shift to a hydrogen era with a, a very expansive R&D program. We met, he gave the green light, and he put a 2 billion euro R&D technology platform in place in Brussels to get us to a hydrogen future. Last year, I met with Angela Merkel on economic issues and, among other things, presented a similar white paper. Subsequent to that visit, Germany has introduced into its official policy of the CDU, Christian Democrats, and the government that they will lead the way to a hydrogen economy with a 2020 roadmap. Governor Schwarzenegger is very aggressive and already out in front. The reason he's the most popular politician in America, he's brought Democrats and Republicans together. I would never believe this would happen. But what he has done is he created a roadmap to get, him, get us out of fossil fuels and uranium, totally into renewables, high benchmark, stored with hydrogen for power and transport, and now they're just having conversations on bringing in the smart grid. You know why? They got all this wind power in California, and they're finding out the wind's blowing at night, not during the day. That's when the wind's blowing. So they're losing the energy. So they've got to put in hydrogen now to store it, because otherwise they're losing on the bottom line. Japan is also moving aggressively. But there is black hydrogen and green hydrogen. When President Bush found out what we were doing here in the EU, the move to renewable energy stored with hydrogen, he made a famous uh, statement in his State of the Union address saying, America will lead the world to hydrogen. It caught all of America by surprise in his 2003 State of the Union address. Well, then, we should have guessed, when his energy bill went to Congress, he was using hydrogen as a Trojan horse to subsidize a new generation of nuclear reactors and coal with the idea that you could sequester the coal, grab the hydrogen, or use nuclear power. And he slashed the renewable energy budget. It would be a tragic mistake in history, whether it's the UK, the US, I don't care who, to put, all, put so much or even any of the precious resources we have into a new generation of old technologies whether it be uranium-based nuclear or coal, because that takes you back to the 20th century. It doesn't take this generation into the 21st century. Those are sunset energies. The European Union began with energy, coal, steel, and the atom. The 50th anniversary was this spring. The question is, what is the next stage of integration for the European Union? In Lisbon, a few years ago, your political leaders remarked that you were going to be the most competitive economy in the world by 2010. It hasn't happened, but it can. Let me suggest that the conversation now in the European Parliament at the Brussels Commission, just beginning, is how do we begin to create a new energy regime that can create the next stage of European integration? Why? Europe has the largest in, Europe's the largest exporting market in the world. You know that. Its GDP is a little less than ours, but there's only two superpowers. Forget China is right around where Italy is in terms of right now, its economic output, all right? Between 
France and Italy, somewhere in that area. But the European Union 27 member states, your GDP is in the range of the United States 50 states. You're the largest exporting power by far in the world. You're also the largest internal market, but you haven't integrated it yet. You've got 500 million people from the Irish Sea to Russia. It's not integrated logistically. The next stage of European integration is to have a seamless power grid across Europe, a seamless transport grid across the corridors of Europe, a seamless communication grid across all of the continent, and underneath it, a distributed energy regime based on renewable energy that you can find across the European continent, stored with hydrogen and distributed with each other with smart grids. So that means that each region can be locally self-sufficient but interdependent with the union, meaning that here in, take a region of England, you can be self-sufficient with your energy like Aragon, take your surplus and then share it. So let's say when the wind is blowing here, the Italians can share your energy. But when the wind isn't blowing, you can take the sun in southern Italy and they can store it with hydrogen and share it back in the grid with you. And when that's not working, you can take the foresty waste and cull it in Slovenia at that time of year and share it back to the grid. It creates the opportunity to have both independence and self-sufficiency locally and interdependence across the continent based on sustainable development and a post-carbon energy era and power to the people. The European dream is an interesting dream. I know it's weak, it's embryonic, it may not succeed, but from an American perspective, it's interesting you even have this dream. Our dream is very primitive. I love the American dream, but it's very primitive. Personal opportunity to succeed, end of story. And it worked for two centuries, pretty robust. It's fading now, but personal opportunity to succeed, end of story. The European dream, of course, is more complicated because you're all more complicated. <laughs> the European dream, even though it's weak, if you ask college-educated Europeans what the dream is, Americans will say personal opportunity to make a success. Every European I've met will say to have a good quality of life. It's a different dream. Your dream is inclusivity. No one should be completely abandoned. There should be some form of solidarity. We have to have a market model, but we have to balance it with a social model. That's the key. Most college-educated Europeans believe that it's not just about growth. It's about sustainable development. The earth counts. You've walked the walk with global warming treaties and biodiversity treaties and precautionary principles and said no to GMOs. I can go across the list. Most college-educated Europeans believe that social and human rights are at least as important as property rights, which is what we mainly talk about in America. Most college-educated Europeans believe you work to live, you don't live to work, you balance work and play. There is a life after the market. And most college-educated Europeans, I would say, would promote peace, you build peace. Occasionally you have to go to war, but you don't go it alone. We can't have six billion cowboys in an interconnected world. We need to work together to build bridges of cooperation. Do I have this down? I'm not saying you're living up to any of this. Dreams are what you'd like to be. We could spend hours on the hypocrisy, the biases, the shortfalls, the prejudices. It's a mess. But so is every other region in the world. But the fact is you're the first collective part of humanity in history that's dreaming a dream as weak as it is that is attempting to go from geopolitics to biosphere politics. You're attempting to think as homo sapiens. And every time you do it, you run back to the xenophobism and the nationalism. I know that. But there's no other laboratory beside you. Inclusivity, sustainable development, building human and social rights, work to live, don't live to work, build peace. That's a global awareness. There's no laboratory for this in China. That's 19th and 20th century ideology. India, 
I'm going to reserve judgment. They may be a comrade. The U.S., Japan. But what I'm suggesting is this dream needs an energy regime that's compatible with the dream. The dream is about sharing as a human race. The dream is about creating Europe as a global public square where the diasporas of the world can live together. But if you have an energy regime that's top-down and elite and centralized, it's not compatible economically with the aspirations we have socially and politically. These old energies are elite. As I said, coal, oil, gas, and uranium are only found in certain parts of the world, and they require a huge geopolitical commitment and a lot of capital investment, and they end up with an unequal world. The sun shines everywhere. The wind blows almost everywhere. Water is there for dams almost everywhere. There's garbage everywhere. There's agricultural waste and forestry waste and tides. They're everywhere. These energies are distributed. We have a generation of students here going to be the business leaders of the 21st century. You grew up on networks and distributed open access models. Shouldn't you be able to have an energy regime that's compatible with your sensibilities as you move into a world where you want distributed power? So if you want a dream that's global, inclusivity, sustainable development, human rights, and peace, there has to be an energy regime that's compatible and sympathetic with those aspirations. It's complicated, it's difficult, and challenging. Last thought. You've been very patient with me. I don't know if your generation can pull this off. I, I don't. Uh, it, there are a lot of scientists who are betting for extinction. Martin Rees, the British scientist, says I give a 50-50 chance of the extinction of the human race in this century. One of the great scientists in the world. James Lovelock, your British scientist, says well, we may not make it. I don't know. It really is not just entertainment or to wake you up saying this. I'm 62 years old. I've seen a lot. This climate change is something that's just unprecedented, at the, and we're peaking in an energy era. All at the same time, we're trying to globalize. What I suggest is that if your generation of leaders, as you come out of a school like LSE, you've got to be concentrated to one singular mission, and that is to open the door to a third industrial revolution, to create an infrastructure for distributed power, to move us off carbon. That has to be the legacy of your generation, your children, and your grandchildren. I don't know if it's too late, given how much we put up there in methane and nitrous oxide and CO2, but we have to act as if it's not too late. Adversity creates opportunity. This third industrial revolution is one of the great opportunities in history. If you can help focus your generation and your leadership in academia and the business community toward finding a way to move quickly and intelligently and in a sober way with complete attention, I believe it's possible to build this infrastructure by 2025 in a primitive fashion. I believe it's possible to mature it by 2050. Why do I believe that? When we went to steam, coal, and rail, and combined it with print. At the time, they said, how would we do this in under 1,000 years? How would we make everyone literate in, in less than 10 generations? How would we lay rail across a continent in less than 10 generations? They did it in 50 in Europe and America. And we went to the telegraph and telephone. They said, how the hell are we going to put telephone wires, telegraph wires across a continent? How are we going to build highways for these cars across a continent? We did it in 50 years. So I believe that the mission is clear for this generation of leaders in the elite schools like LSE. Lead with your generation. Be bold and introduce these new distributive technologies. Get us to a post-carbon energy era. Help put in to place a third industrial revolution and give this planet a chance to reheal so we can have a sustainable future for our children and our fellow creatures who deserve to be here as well.
Thank you. Good morning. We have uh, 20 minutes for questions. Uh, is there's a roaming mic? I don't think we need a roaming mic, but there is one over there for those people who want it. Uh, we, should, we usually take questions of that's okay in clusters of four or five, so you get a sense of what's on the audience's mind. With me, so, so hands up, who wants to ask a question? Uh, well, we start. Yes, where's the mic? Let's bring it across the room this way. My wife says, the older I get, the longer I talk. She says, edit, edit. I, you've been very patient. But, okay. you know, I'm used to a classroom from the old days, you know. You walk, you talk. So I want to hear from you. So don't worry about how long we stay, however you want. We'll, we'll figure you, this out. you met a government minister recently, you said, uh, maybe today. Did he give you any hope uh, that all of this is going to happen? Okay. It was, uh, well, it was a private conversation. All I can say is that uh, you have a very bright, very intelligent, obviously, environmental minister. Uh, I'd say... From looking afar, I, this is one of the few governments I've had no contact with until today. I work heavily with the Italian government, the Spanish government, uh, the, the presidencies of those countries. I've had no contact with Prime Minister Blair. He's one of the few I have not. So I'm not privy to what, everything that's going on. What I would suggest is the U.K. is in an ideal position to lead because you're moving strong on renewables. You understand the diagnosis of climate change. But, I don't, but I'm not sure yet you have a narrative for the third industrial revolution. It's all about benchmarking, how much this, how much that. But in order to move to a new era, we have to paint the picture, the narrative of what a third industrial revolution would look like. The elements are in place, but then there has to be a framework to get there. So that's why I brought this conversation this morning. We had about a 45-minute discussion on it. And uh, let's hope for the best. I think both the conservatives and the socialists are moving quickly here in the U.K. It could be either party that introduces this. It could be either party. I don't care who introduces it, frankly. I work with both the center-right and the center-left. Whoever introduces it, let's get on with it, you know, don't you think? Maybe it can be across the aisle. In Germany, Mr. Steinmeier has joined with Ms. Merkel, the socialists, and the CDU to a hydrogen economy. That's amazing that they did that. And without any, you know, uh, backbiting at all, they're moving together. Maybe you could do that here. Is the mic pass it behind you, yeah? This, yeah. But I, I would want to preface this so you know my strong feeling about nuclear. I think this was a I, – I, I met with David King last year. We had dinner, uh, you know, who's the science advisor for uh, Mr. Blair. And I, I wanted to be focused. I said this day, nuclear power is the wrong way to go. First of all, you're not going to be able to build it, it too many. The public here is totally opposed to it as it is elsewhere. Try to imagine building even 20 nuclear power plants in the U.K. It's not going to happen. So we should get on with it and get to the renewable agenda that the EU has set out and let UK lead the agenda, which it could. Okay. Hi, thanks for that talk. It's very interesting and inspiring. Um, but you didn't dwell too much on the um, costs of hydrogen technologies, which are still currently um, at every stage production of hydrogen storage and distribution and end use are still much higher than any competing existing technology and also in quite a different league to solar and uh, solar PV and wind power which you also mentioned are, ex are experiencing good cost reductions but hydrogen is still hydrogen technology is still a way above that and while in some specific applications people are already demonstrating that um, the technologies are close to viability for example in cut-off areas with high renewable resources as you can say you can use hydrogen to store the energy 
The idea of building a massive grid across Europe, a hydrogen grid, connecting all these centres up, that's uh, a huge investment in um, still very expensive distribution technologies and storage technologies. And I just wonder, who do you think would drive that kind of massive upfront capital investment which would have to be made before... Uh, before much um, usage and return was going to be seen on it, because if you put all the pipelines on, you know, before you've got anybody, any vehicles sort of being used anyway. So should that be driven by coalitions of businesses, or does government or the EU have to take a strong role? Uh, well, you went right to the economics of this. It's, it's, this is the same problem you have at the beginning of the first and second industrial revolution, and that is the introduction of new technology. They're expensive. The materials developments aren't there. The economies of scale have not set in. First car is going to cost you a million dollars, but if you put 100,000 cars in the line, you get down to $30,000 a euro. So uh, the, the materials are still a problem. The thermodynamics aren't quite there. Uh, it's a disruptive technology revolution on a grand scale. But remember, the, the fuel cell, you get it paid back on the back end because it's two and a half times more efficient than the internal combustion engine. That's dramatic. And if it's locally generated, you can take the heat and co-generate it back. So actually, when you say it's too expensive, we now have enough lighthouse projects where we're showing that it can be done cheaply because you make it at the back side. But there's a lot of price on the front side, but once you introduce the technology, two and a half times more efficient and you co-generate back. But it's still lots of problems. You mentioned pipelines, and this is an important point you brought up. We're not going to need pipelines. Uh, early on, the discussion was, how would you build pipelines for the, net, for the hydrogen? And then, a, uh, because the auto companies were saying to the energy companies, build us the filling stations, get us the pipelines, then we'll put the cars out. And then what do the energy companies say? Give us the cars, then we'll do it. Then a study was done by Ford Motor Company. It was so elegant and simple. Sometimes the simple things you don't see. And now it's turned around the thinking. Pipelines are a centralized 20th century kind of idea because you're going from a centralized source to the end user. You don't need the pipelines. They're now putting together portables for natural gas reforming and electrolyzers for electricity. Every home, every office, every shopping mall, every filling station has an electricity line and a natural gas line already. So if it's a natural gas line, you just connect the portable. They already have the technology. And you connect the portable, and it steams out the hydrogen, and you just put it in the car. If you have electricity there on your electricity line, you have an electrolyzer. It's portable. You electrolyze, use some of the electricity you don't need for power and light. You electrolyze the water, and you grab the hydrogen. It goes right into the tank. Ford, all these companies, Honda, are going to give you a portable to take home with you. Uh, now, with early fleet adoption, governments and then DHL, Federal Express, public transport, they're not going to need more than one filling station because they go back to the, the beginning. You follow me? The beginning, the end of the line, public transport, early adoptions. And they'll bring the price down. So we have to think in terms of distributed power. Now, the key is natural gas is a transition. We want to head toward electricity, but we want more of that electricity benchmarked to renewables. And then we can take the hydrogen from it, both for backup on the power grid if we want to sell back the hydrogen back to the electricity when the grid needs it, but use it for our car or our truck or our bus. There are 40 buses being tested in Europe now, 402 years from now. The first ferries are being built, hydrogen ferries, right now on the docks in the Netherlands. The Germans have just built the first hydrogen submarine. The three-wheel scooters are going to go quick. 
There are now a number of companies are building them for the developing world because that's cheap and they can use renewable right away and that's the major source of transport across Asia and parts of Africa and South America. So we're begin the first trains, uh, Japan's tested the first hydrogen train. There's one being built in the EU and at this point. We're just beginning. We've got to get the cost down, the materials down, the thermodynamics down. We've got to get the economies of scale in. It's disruptive. And if I were looking at it and saying, how could we do this, I would say, I can't see it. But then when we went to steel, coal, rail, and print, they said, this is too daunting. How would we ever get literacy and do all this? And we did it. And we did it in 50 years. Same with the second industrial revolution. So I think if the resolve is there, the bucks are there. The amount of money being poured in and since the Stern report, again, you British should congratulate yourself for Mr. Blair uh, on making this a, a, an issue and the Stern report. Billions and billions of investments going into renewables right now in the last six months, everywhere. Some banks are putting, I just was, uh, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, eight, nine billion dollars each. I mean, this is massive. So I think we can get there. I think we can reach thresholds where we double the knowledge and half the cost as we did with the computer industry. There are going to be many mistakes. There are going to be many lost experiments that are going to be failures. Some will be successful, just like in the Internet, IT, and software revolution. How will we do it? It needs to be a partnership between government at every level, municipal, the regions, the nation states, and the transnational spaces like the EU, with industry and private capital, leverage with public capital, and great involvement by civil society. Because ultimately, this is micro-generation. People have to be able to see themselves as a power source in their home, in their little SME retail business. That's already beginning in California on a small scale and in Japan and Tokyo, et cetera. So we're at the beginning. I think it's daunting. I think we need to leverage this not as one issue among any, many, but the centerpiece. If, if we were to create a narrative of the first Industrial Revolution where we say, oh, well, let's not try that in advance, or the second Industrial Revolution. If there's an alternative to this third Industrial Revolution, I'm willing to entertain it. I just haven't seen it. Could I just ask this, the, the, you, whether you, you, you want to come back on the technological, aspect, the technological optimism of our speaker, as it were? Because yours, clearly behind your question is a, is a sort of hesitation. Mm. Well, I suppose what you could come back and say is that, that driving previous Industrial Revolutions were, um, and I haven't, to be honest, I haven't sort of studied these in great detail, but uh, my initial observation would be that driving them forward were, were quite, um, quite sort of key public, uh, or, or well, private consumer benefits, if you like. Um, so having greater access to power and electricity grids, I mean, that was something that people wanted, you know, for the convenience and the um, benefits that it brought to them. Um, the automobile and people, people liked, you know, had, there was a, a, a strong sort of private benefit to a consumer to actually get an automobile yes, and, and, and pick up. But, but with, with hydrogen, the, the benefits are almost entirely public. I mean, it's this, the carbon issue, the security of supply issue. But the technologies are all just doing things which there are existing technologies to do at the moment. So if, you're, if you want to buy a fuel cell car, it will cost you uh, many, many times as much, but it will do the same thing. It will get you from A to B. So in a sense, you know, the, the, the cost is, does seem quite challenging because it's, it's hard to conceive of what the hydrogen economy can offer Yes, on a pure economic sense. Let me say that it's, they're on two levels. First of all, if it isn't a benefit to the consumer, it's not going to make it. There are two levels here. One is industry for logistics. They need this because the high price of energy makes them uncompetitive in world markets. So it's not just about energy efficiency. They've got to move to renewables 
and they've got to have a way to store and transport for logistics. They're going to have to do that. That's the name of the game. That's going to affect all of industry, everyone. That's the name of the game. Climate change will condition. Energy price will condition. And all decisions at the bottom line in every company I work with in the world is now shifting from labor cost to logistics. So that's where you have to come in with renewables and you have to have a way to store it. For the ultimate consumer in my country, we're having a huge turnaround in the building market now. Google it up. Even though we, the, the housing bubble has burst, all, most of the new housing is going green. Why? Just because businesses think that will make them look good? No. We are living on a margin like you are in Britain. We are two countries that have lost our family savings rates. And we both our economies grew in the last 15 years by depleting our family savings and going to negative income. You followed our lead. Not a very good move on your part. But So what we did is we went from a 8% family savings rate to negative income to keep our economy moving. And then our last asset was our house because of an artificial bubble. But now the bubble's burst and we have negative income. So what this means, as wages have remained stagnant, the energy cost is a straw that breaks the camel's back in every home. When that natural gas price goes up and the electricity goes up, which it is, and the price of petrol for the car goes up, this is the last straw because we're living marginally as a lot of Brits are. We don't have the family savings cushion. Our housing is going south, as yours is, I guess, too, here, isn't it? It's a little bit in Britain, the housing market, not as much. Not in London, of course. Uh, but what this suggests is that the reason green housing is coming in like a vengeance is when people are buying new homes, they want to see what their cost is going to be to pay their monthly bill because that's a, the, the third biggest cost they have after transport and food. This is not a small item. So I think that the green building is not because they want to be vogue, but they're trying to meet consumer demand. In Spain, by the way, they just passed a law. All new buildings in Spain have to have solar built in and then they're going to retro the new ones, built in. And this is what California is doing with solar roofs. So if you're a consumer, hell, why wouldn't you want to have energy locally generated through your solar or your wind or whatever, and then be able not only to have be off the grid, but sell back to the grid and make, a few, and make some extra money a year? That's happening in various states in the U.S. now with real consumers. So I think it has to be on two levels, logistics for industry globally and regionally, and it has to be a market for consumers, both for electricity and for transport. And if a local person can generate, we have a fuel cell that just came in in Tuscany. It's all done by solar and wind. It's cheap as hell, much cheaper than your petrol. And they can put it in the form of hydrogen and put it in the hydrogen car right now, and it's much cheaper. So when people say it's more expensive, this is one little fuel cell operation with wind and solar. It costs almost nothing to do. And they can, an individual could do it in their own home, and it's a lot cheaper to get that renewables, put it in hydrogen, store it in the car, than it is to buy petrol right now. So I think the question is how do we bring this in on scale, and I don't think it's just about the market. What the companies are saying to me is we're waiting for signals from governments to set the framework, to create this, the narrative so we actually know how we work together to integrate this across chemical industry, construction, engineering, IT software, auto, it goes on and on. Well, noting uh, Jeremy's wife's observation that uh, the older he gets, the longer he needs to, to speak. Uh, I think we'll have to have you back next time and budget a much longer period of time for you. Um, because this room has, uh, will be used again in not so long, we can't actually, unfortunately, go on. But I would like to take one last question. Can you just pass the mic behind you? And if you keep it brief. Well, thank uh, you very much. Um, Yes, I mean, you pointed towards a very exciting future for Homo sapiens. 
and that you make a very good case as well. But what could stand in the way of this future? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder could stand in the way. Been there, done that. Let's move to the next story. I'm very serious about this. We have a, a generation of multitasking, short attention span across three generations now. We may not, we, we, we see everything as entertainment. We may not actually focus on this as a survival of the human race. Let's get on to the next story. Saw the movie. I'm serious about that. I think that it requires a sober commitment. It requires sacrifice. It requires being able to rethink the way we understand how the infrastructure of this planet is set up. It we have to rethink economic activity and create open source, open access models like we did with communication. This is threatening. There's a lot of industry that doesn't like to do this. Some will join in this future. Some will hold this future from coming to be. We have a generation of politicians that does, in some places understand it and others have no concept of it. It would be very difficult for the centralized Chinese government to entertain what I said this afternoon. It would be a lot easier for the Indian government to do it because it's more decentralized. It would be very difficult in France to entertain this since it's traditionally a centralized country. It would be much more easy in the U.K., where the regions are becoming more autonomous, or Spain and Germany. So there are a lot of geographic interesting complications here. I think in the bottom, I don't know the bottom line, I think that it's all going to depend on whether the generations living today understand the urgency of this and understand the opportunity. I'm not an optimist. If you've ever followed my work over the last 30, 40 years, I've been accused of being very critical of technologies. I'm not an even optimist here saying this is a utopia. I think this is the best roadmap we've got. My own conviction is renewables going back to the sun is what we've got. We've got to store it in hydrogen and distribute it on grids. If someone can find some other way to reorganize the energy of the sun, I would be very open to it. So my hope here is at LSE, where you have a world-class institution, mobilize here on campus the students, the faculty, began to have this conversation, began to do the white papers. Google up, you'll see how many billions are being spent in this industry. Start putting papers together on how, this could be op how we could open up the doors. What are the opportunities? If I were a student uh, and I were your age, I would be looking at this third industrial revolution. I'd be smelling it out. I'd be skeptical but open. And I'd say, how do we get us to a post-carbon era? That's my mission as I leave this school for my life's legacy. Thank you. The audience has already applauded, but I just want to thank you very much for a, a very rare lecture, an analytical lecture, um, a visionary lecture, and an entertaining lecture. It's not often we get it all in one, uh, but I think for most of us who are here today, it will be a very memorable lecture as well. Many thanks. <laughs>